0: Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious heavenly father, we do pray that today we would know the comfort of your word by knowing that it is your word, the word of the true and living God, by understanding it and by believing what it says. And we pray you'll give me grace to speak your word faithfully and truthfully. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That's what Paul said to the converts from his first missionary journey in Asia and the congregations Peter is writing to were experiencing the truth of that. They were suffering grief in various trials and were experiencing what Peter called the fiery ordeal, the testing of suffering for keeping on doing God's will, suffering for keeping on being faithful to Christ in word and deed, in confession and lifestyle, in a world in rebellion to its creator and king. And Peter's been encouraging them to persevere in faithfulness to Jesus, to persevere joyfully. But it is hard to persevere in suffering if you think it's purposeless or you feel you're forgotten in your suffering. It's hard to face the challenge of of suffering for faithfulness if you consider your resources inadequate, fear you'll be overwhelmed. And it's hard to keep on the path of suffering if you think the harm done will be irreversible. The wounds, however worthily received, will never be healed. Now, believers today know that for ourselves. Because we also suffer grief in various trials. Have our faith tested by sickness, grief, loss of work, the failure of relationships, by the uncertainties and pressures of a world not as it should be? And sharing the faith of Peter's first hearers, being like them, resident foreigners and sojourners in this world because we've placed our hope in Jesus we also share in being suffering for being faithful to Christ in word and deed, confession and lifestyle suffering for doing good, whether it's the criticism of our peers or families for not sharing the same values and pleasures as them, the suspicion of a society that thinks Christian morality prevents human flourishing, or the pressures of workplaces that seek to promote self-realisation through sexual freedom or worship greed. We know it's hard to persevere in suffering if we think it's purposeless or feel that we're forgotten in our suffering, if we think our resources are inadequate, fear being overwhelmed, or if we think the harm done will be irreversible, the wounds received never heal. So we need, just as Peter's first readers needed, to hear these words of comfort God has caused Peter to write at the end of his letter words that assure us of God's rule and care in all the circumstances of our life, of the adequacy of faith to keep us safe in our struggle and of the commitment of God to heal all our wounds. These are words for us if we are believers in Jesus. Peter's reminded us, in verse 5 from Proverbs three thirty four, reminded us of what every believer in Jesus knows to be true, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, as believers, we're convinced of its truth because we have seen it proved true in the events of the gospel, in the life of our Lord Jesus, who humbled himself to death on the cross and was then exalted over all rule and power and authority over all. And we found it to be true ourselves because of our experience in believing the gospel. Humbling ourselves to accept God's verdict on us that we're sinners, rebels against God who deserve his just wrath. Humbling ourselves and turning back to God, repenting, saying it's right that the Lord Jesus, God's king, rules our life, right that he's our boss. We have found grace, grace that forgives and gives us new life. Believers know God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So now Peter writes to teach those first believers and us how to live through our experience of suffering grief in various trials, of suffering for doing good, how to live through those experiences so that we share in the exaltation God's grace brings to the humble, share in the kingdom. God gives to the poor in spirits. Humble yourselves therefore, that is, because God gives grace to the humble, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that in due season he may exalt you. Now what is it to humble yourself under God's mighty hand? Well, it's to say that God's God. He's the creator and we are not. We're mortal. We're creatures. It's to recognise that he is almighty and he does whatever he wills and his will will prevail. Oh, and it's to recognise that God knows best. He knows best how to fulfil his promises to his people He knows best how to bring his good news to the ends of the earth. He knows best how to enact his judgments. He knows best how to glorify his son in the lives of his people. And so if he wills this time to be a time of persecution, he knows best. And if he wills this time to be a time of pandemic, however disruptive to our plans and prosperity, he knows what he is doing. To humble yourself under God's mighty hand is to say with suffering Job, to say what Job said when the Lord revealed himself to Job but gave him no explanation at all for the suffering he received. To humble yourself under God's mighty hand is to say like Job, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I'll speak, I'll question you and you'll answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job humbled himself. He acknowledged God's greatness and his smallness, God's knowledge and his ignorance. To humble ourselves under God's mighty hand is not fatalism or the resignation of stoicism to the unthinking, uncaring forces that control the universe. It's not just saying, well, that's the way things are and I just have to accept that. No, this is under God's mighty hand, humbling yourself, under the God who is acting in power to save you. God's mighty hand is an Old Testament phrase found in accounts of the Exodus. It's actually associated with God's rescue of his people from Egypt. And so the Lord says to Moses before he rescued them, I know the king of Egypt will not allow you to go even under force from a strong, that is, a mighty hand. And when he had rescued them and brought them to himself, Deuteronomy 5, he says, remember that you're a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong, that is, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. There are lots of other references in Exodus and Deuteronomy. See, God's mighty hand speaks of the might by which God works his saving purpose in the world. And defeats his enemies. To humble ourselves under God's mighty hand is actually personal and relational, an expression of our trust in our saving God. It's to say of our suffering, This is the way my mighty God has ordered things for my good, to prosper his saving purpose in my life. To humble ourselves under God's mighty hand is to accept that our sufferings are not purposeless, but that they have a good purpose, a purpose that Peter's already spoken of, uh, the purpose that our faith should be refined, though perishable, so that it results in praise, glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, the purpose in God's great plan that he purifies his people, as we saw in Malachi 3, before he comes to judge the world. Our trials are purifying our faith, equipping us to be people who honour God with our trust, to be a people who will rejoice and share in praise, glory and honour when our Lord is revealed. Now, as believers in the gospel, we should be already prepared to humble ourselves under god's mighty hand, to acknowledge our God is wiser and more powerful than we can imagine that even when things look dark and difficult, He is doing all things well. so think we begin the Christian life saying, God has saved us through the crucifixion of His Son, our Lord Jesus.' that he's actually defeated all his foes by that shameful humiliation, that he's restored moral order in the universe by that unjust execution, that he's brought eternal life through that cruel death. We know that God has vindicated his greatness, shown he is the only God and saviour of the world in a way that would never have occurred to us. Left to ourselves, we'd all be with Peter saying to the Lord Jesus when he began speaking of his crucifixion, we'd be with Peter saying, oh no, Lord, that will never happen to you. We start the Christian life confessing, don't we, that God is so much wiser, so much mightier, so much more loving than us and confessing that the Lord came to his exaltation by humbling himself, saying to the Father, not my will but yours be done. It should be natural for believers in Jesus to humble ourselves under the mighty saving hand of our God and avoid its opposite. See, the opposite to humbling ourselves is the pride that says or thinks God should run the universe to suit me. Or at least he ought to consult me and explain himself to me if he's going to do anything I may not like that I might find difficult or hard. The pride that thinks that if God is to have any place in my life, well it's to partner with me in achieving the best life for me, of which I'll be the judge. That if I do my bit, fulfil my obligations in the partnership, my religious works, go to church, give to the poor, read the Bible, whatever. He has to do his bit and keep me safe and happy. And if he doesn't, I have a right to be angry with him, to criticise the way he runs things, especially say the way people who are not as good as me seem to have so much a better life. I have a right to grumble about his ordering of the affairs of my life. Now, of course, we may not put it as crudely or as clearly as that, but that pride is deep-seated, lurking in the shadows of our hearts, just waiting its opportunity. And hasn't one of the challenges of the pandemic, for some of us, been to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand as it exposed our pride? (coughs) Think of the anger or the grumbling we've shown. I mean, it was a challenge for me. I remember in 2020, first lockdown, being so angry that I couldn't do what I wanted, go where I wanted, speak face-to-face with whom I wanted, that people would be making rules that so interfered with my life without even consulting me. How dare they? And I don't think, you know, that I've been the only person to have to deal with anger or being tempted to give way to criticizing and complaining. Oh, of course. I'm a Christian. You know, I could say my anger wasn't directed against God, don't know no, it was against the government or the epidemiologists or the vaccinated or the unvaccinated. The, oh the list goes on. And I am clever enough to clothe my anger in the language of rights or science or freedom. But the truth was, I was just angry and looking for a target. I was just angry. And at its heart, what was being exposed was my sense of entitlement, my belief that life should be organised the way I thought it should be. I had to actually realise that at the core of my anger, was lack of trust in God as he is. You see, unless I was you know, going to admit that my God was some feeble idol and not the God who had revealed himself in the death and resurrection of his son Jesus, the Lord of all, well, I had to admit that actually it's God who was in charge of governments and their decisions, God in charge of the movement of the virus, God in charge of the development of vaccines, in charge of all those things that were disturbing me. And so I had to confess that God knows what he's doing and he won't fail in his promise to work this even decisions I might agree with for the good of his people, I had to confess and repent of my pride before almighty God. Repent of thinking that he should organise the world, achieve his purposes in ways I found congenial. Now, as I've said, I don't think that that's just me. I think many of us have struggled with that anger and discontent. You know, recognising that and humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God can free us from that anger that can destroy relationships and divide families, that grumbling that can never encourage, free us to love people struggling with great and new challenges. Encourage imperfect people trying to do their best. Free us to pray for those we disagree with. So if you're still struggling with the anger, or if you find yourself in these times prone to grumbling, and uh, test that when the next change comes out that interferes with your plans, this is actually your opportunity to work out whether you really trust the sovereign God who saves by the death and resurrection of his son. To work out whether you've confessed, like Job, your smallness, his greatness, your ignorance, his wisdom. See, it's an opportunity not just to repent of anger and grumbling, but of the pride that drives them. Another opportunity to put it to death, And so know the freedom of humbling yourself under God's mighty hand. But Peter focuses on one particular expression of our humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand. Humble yourselves, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Now casting is a word that could be used for tossing your clothes onto the bed. Where to toss all our cares, our anxieties, onto God. They are off us and onto him. And it is all our cares. You know, those in Peter's day who professed in a pagan society faith in Christ had many cares, many things to be concerned about. Loss of status and respect, loss of family, loss of friends, loss of livelihood, even loss of life. And we have many cares from this pandemic, don't we? Concerns for our children, their development and education, for our economy and work, even for the future of our society and its freedoms and peace. Oh, other concerns. Whether we'll have enough strength to keep adapting or energy to re-engage. Or in the church, whether people's faith will withstand the trial, whether our love will be real and persevering whether we will well, keep looking out from ourselves to share the gospel. There are many cares and all are to be cast on our God. You see, casting our cares on him says we depend on our God as he has revealed himself to be, a God who is almighty, a God for whom nothing is too hard, a God who orders the events of our lives for his good purposes, a God who cares. To not do that, to not cast our cares on God, to keep on nursing our anxieties and feeding our fears can be again a form of pride. The pride that thinks everything depends on us and that is destructive. It shifts the focus from being God's child in these circumstances by trusting him with our cares and obeying his word. It shifts the focus from that to, well, how can I find a solution for my problem myself? And in doing that, it opens the door to what Scripture calls being wise in our own eyes, setting aside God's good and clear commands to do what we think best. Now, sadly, I see that happening over and over again. For example, someone's in a loveless marriage, struggling and they're struggling within it with their desires. And the way of trusting God, casting their cares on him and living his way seems too long, too long or too hard. And so they seek to find release for their desires in watching porn and justify themselves it to themselves as necessary. There's no other way, they say, that I can stay in this marriage. Despite all the harm it does to those involved in making porn, the harm it does to their relationships, to themselves and its secrecy, through its secrecy and addictive nature. Or someone might have an obligation they cannot meet and so they lie about it. Little lies like, oh, sorry, I never received the email, I don't know, it must have gone into spam. I, you know. Or the big lies like, no one will ever miss the money. Or, or they might be worried about the direction of society, feel so powerless and so justify disobedience to government when scripture clearly commands it. But we are to trust God and cast all our cares on him, not think it all depends on us, not be tempted, to actually resist the temptation to be wise in our own eyes. And why should we do that? Why should we cast our cares on him? Well, it says, because he cares for you. Now, to know the truth of that statement for yourself, To be convinced of it, that's actually worth everything. I hope you know that. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you should not leave here this morning without being convinced of it. And if you're not yet a believer, you might be unsettled by the baldness of that statement, by the thought that the living almighty God cares for the believers. You know, perhaps you're even offended by the audacity of people whose lives seem no different or only a little different from your own. The audacity of people saying that God knows them individually and cares for them. Because let's face it, it is an extraordinary thing to say to believe, isn't it? I mean it seems so implausible. You and I are one amongst billions. We are insignificant despite what the advertisers would like you to believe. You see the world didn't stop to celebrate when you were born and it won't notice your passing. Why should God bother about any of us? And you and I are sinners, rebels against God, people who, until we repented and believed, we're doing our best to ignore God, keep Him out of our lives. And as some of you sadly know, it is hard to keep caring about someone who makes it clear to you that they wish you were dead. That's what we've done to God. How could we think God could care for us? And sometimes the experiences of our lives make us wonder, if God cares for us? Remember, Peter's writing to address the grief and suffering of believers. Grief and suffering believers still experience. How could we think God cares for us? Well, it's not because of our achievements or our goodness, our wisdom, our family. There is actually only one answer, isn't there? As Clint said, it's because the gospel tells us so, and the spirit assures us so. See, in the gospel, we learn that God so loved us, he gave his loved son for us. Gave his son for us while we were still sinners, rebels. A demonstration of a love that cannot be doubted or surpassed. Oh, and through the gospel, we know that the Lord Jesus has actually called us individually. He knows us by name. And believing the gospel, the Lord Jesus gives us his spirit, the spirit through whom God pours his love into our hearts. And yes, the gospel also gives us this unsurpassed hope that puts our suffering in context and makes them worthwhile. To believe the gospel is to know that you could never, what you could never dare to believe or claim for yourself that the living almighty creator god because he is gracious loving in himself cares for you that's gospel 101 isn't it he cares for you but brothers and sisters aren't there times when we struggle to believe it when we let the remembrance of old sins make us doubt that God could love us. When the weakness of our flesh tells us this is all too hard, when our pride demands that we be treated differently to God's wise and loving ordering of our lives. And in doubting, we rob ourselves of joy and thankfulness and confident hope. You know, we have to remember that the gospel is God's gospel not a human fiction this letter is what God caused Peter through his spirit to write God's word and God says here believer he cares for you that you can face life with all its trials knowing he cares for you cares for you as you are it's not what you might become, cares for you as you are now. And when you're struggling with believing that, believing what God says here, as Clinton said, go back to the gospel. Read or hear of Jesus, who never turned any away, who welcomed the needy and the insignificant, who would have time for you. Read of his death, the death that he said was giving his life as a ransom for many to free us from the penalty our sin deserved and know he was dying for your sin. Read how he convinced his followers he's alive, that he's living and powerful to care. Read of how he sent them into the world with the gospel, to share the promise of new life with all and, yes, with you. And if you're a believer, well, come and remember the Lord Jesus in the way he commanded, the way he wants you to remember him. That is taking the symbol of his death, the bread and the cup from his hand as you hear him say, this was my body. Given for you. Believe the gospel and repent of doubting his forgiveness. Repent of doubting his love and good purpose for you. He who has given himself for you. And repent of your pride that only wants to be loved in the way you want to be loved the pride that could never have approved of the cross that saved you. They are sins in our heart and they need to be repented from. And then let your soul rejoice and know the comfort of what God says to each believer in Jesus. He cares for you. And then show it, humbling yourself and casting your cares on him. Now, believer, if you don't hear anything else this morning, you ought to hear this. He cares for you freely, graciously. You didn't cause him to care for you. He won't stop caring for you. It flows from within him. And if that's where you want to stop listening, and in fact this is where I'll stop anyhow, process what that means for the way you think about and respond to what you're going through at the moment. And if you're not yet a believer, you need to work out if the gospel is true. If Jesus really is God's son, who died to save sinners and who's been raised to life and rule, who came in love to give life and light to people like you and I in darkness and the death of sin. You need to work out whether that's true because it is a much better story than the secular worlds where you're just a piece of highly evolved primordial slime brought into being without thought or purpose, living out your brief life in an uncaring, unseeing universe with all you are able to look look forward to is having your elements recycled into another piece of purposeless, meaningless living organism. It's a much better story. So come and talk and read a gospel or read through a gospel with Chris in Christianity Explained. Now, believers, there is more more comforting words at the end of 1 Peter. They're there in the transcript. You can read them for yourself. But if you take away anything, and in a sense it's, it's one of the big things you actually have to learn from this time. The great freeing power of humbling yourself under God's mighty hand and casting all your cares on him, that frees you to live God's way, a life of love of others and the wonder of believing the gospel and knowing because God God has said it. What you would never believe for yourself, he cares for you. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray in your grace and kindness that you would convict us of this truth because you have convicted us of the truth of the gospel that Christ has died for our sins and risen again, and reigns, and has called us to himself to find life and forgiveness in him. Convict us of this truth, we pray, and help us then to live as people who know the true and living God cares for us, humbling ourselves under your saving hand and committing all our cares to you.